As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. Honey from the Rock, nurturing life in a culture of death. A Restore Night Talk by Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Where's the camera? Wherever the camera needs to be. Well, good evening, everybody. Um, thank you for coming tonight. It's my last night here uh, before I go to uh, Melbourne uh, tomorrow. So thank you for coming. Um, I want to just talk about uh, this culture of life and how we can stand up to this culture. And I want to start with a familiar number that you've heard over and over again in the Bible. That's the number 40. We've all heard of 40 days and 40 nights, Noah in the ark. We've heard of uh, Israel wandering in the desert for 40 years. Jesus in the desert for 40 days preparing for his ministry. Elijah in the desert for 40 days. Moses going to get the Ten Commandments for 40 days. And why is that number 40 so important? For the Israelites, it signified a time of trial, testing, and waiting because it was the number of gestational weeks in a pregnancy. That's where the number 40 comes from. Uh, And if anybody's been pregnant, you know it's a time of trial and waiting and preparation and testing. That biblical use... Oh, she's apologizing to her mother. Isn't that sweet? (laughs) The biblical use of the number 40 usually has one overarching focus. It's a journey that always leads to a time of spiritual growth and change. So let's be honest. How many times have we been involved in this work of building a culture of life and then asking ourselves, are we really making a difference? It's for the unborn children, for the elderly, and for children like Charlie Gard and Alfie Evans, that we make the time to defend the immutable and absolute right to life. We must continue to be vigilant, bold, and courageous. Now, the scriptures record a famous encounter between a young man, David, and Goliath the Goth. Now, it's interesting. You remember the story? The Philistines were about to fight the Israelites. They're on two different sides of the mountain. There's a valley in between. They're about to throw down. Goliath the Goth comes out and says, hey, look, instead of all this bloodshed, let's do this. You bring somebody out here to fight me. If I win... You're our slaves. If you win, we're your slaves. Let's do this. And he begins to mock the armies of God. And what was the response of Saul and the armies of Israel? It says Saul and all the armies of Israel were dismayed and greatly afraid. Until David shows up. And what day, because it says that uh, Goliath was issuing the challenge to the Israelite army twice a day, day and night. For how many days? (laughs) Forty. And then David shows up. Because after 40 days, weeks, years, God is going to do something. Now, why was Goliath so scary? Look at the description of Goliath. In 1 Samuel 17, it says, There came from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath the Goth, whose height was six Cubits and a span. So a cubit is 18 inches. A span is half a cubit or nine inches. So he's 2.97 meters tall. Big dude. 
He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. And the coat weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. So I did some calculations, because I have to put it in uh, kilos. That's uh, 56.7 kilos was his armor. So a 2.97 meter dude comes out with 56.7 pounds, uh, um, kilos of armor. You're going to be scared. But it sometimes feel like that when we're doing this, the work of the culture of life. Sometimes it seems scary and intimidating, the road that's in front of us. And all too often, we act like the armies of Israel. We are dismayed and greatly afraid. The size, the scope, the depth of the onslaught seems so scary that we refuse to fight. Instead, we tremble with fear and we say... And we do nothing too worried about what people are going to think about us, too worried about political correctness, too worried about what our friends are going to say. Who cares? What we need to worry about is what God thinks. It's like we've gone back to the Garden of Eden again. After the fall, we hid ourselves from God. And that beautiful anthropomorphic image of God walking through the garden in the cool of the day. And he's looking for us and he's asking a question. Where are you? And I can't help but think that God is looking down upon all his children, all the people who his son died for. And he's looking at what's going on in the culture. And he's saying, where are you? Where are the voices of the people that my son died for. My son told the truth and they killed him. Where are all the voices following my son who said to pick up your cross and follow me? The Goliaths in our lives cause us to fear and it's fear that empties us of love. So we have to learn how to love more than be afraid. So that's what David does. David comes out, he hears Goliath mocking the armies of God on day 40. And he says, are we just going to stand here? Well, this uncircumcised Philistine mocks the armies of God. Oh, no, I'm going to do something about it. What's our response to the Goliaths in our lives? We're going to cower in fear. We're going to say, no, no more. I'm going to do something about it. So here's what David does. David goes to Saul and says, Saul, I, I want to fight that guy. Now, remember, David's a teenager. Saul says, dude, you're kidding me, right? That guy, you're only a kid. That guy's been a warrior since he was, gonna, he's, he was a kid. He's going to kill you. David said, look, yeah, I'm just a kid. I'm out there with the sheep just being a shepherd. But I'll tell you this. When the lion or the bear came and took that sheep, I left the other sheep behind and I went after that one. That sounds familiar. Didn't Jesus say something about leaving the 99 behind and going after the one? And that's why one of the titles for Jesus is son of David. So he says, I went after that sheep, that lion or that bear and I snatched that sheep out of its mouth. And if that bear or that lion turned on me, I smoked that lion or that bear. And I'm going to do the same thing to this Philistine. And Saul says, okay, dude, your funeral. <laughs> so David makes his only mistake. 
Look at this description. Tell me who he sounds like. David girded, uh, David put a helmet on his head, clothed himself with a coat of mail, girded himself with a sword. Who does he sound like to you? Goliath. He's trying to fight Goliath with the weapons of man, and it doesn't work. David says, I cannot go out with these. I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Because David understood you cannot fight the Goliaths in your life with the weapons of man. So what does he do instead? David took a staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's bag or wallet. And a sling was in his hand and he drew near the Philistine. So David goes into his shepherd's bag or wallet and he pulls out a sling and five smooth stones, a sling and five smooth stones. Now, if you understand biblical typology, I think David fought Goliath with a type of rosary, the sling and then the five stones representing the five wounds of Christ or each of the five joyful, sorrowful, luminous and glorious mysteries of the rosary. David understood you can only defeat the Goliath in your life with the weapons of God. Now, when we do that, when we stand up to the Goliath of this culture with this onslaught of so-called redefinition of marriage and transgenderism and abortion and in vitro fertilization and euthanasia and fetal stem cell cloning. We have to remember the only way we're going to win is fighting with the weapons of God. But when we do that, the Goliath is going to try and turn on us. So when David goes out to meet Goliath with his sling and five smooth stones, what does Goliath say? And the Philistines said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And what's the culture going to say to us? What's Goliath going to say to us? Wait a minute. (laughs) You're going to come to me with your rosaries and your chaplets and your Eucharistic adoration. And you think that you can beat me? I'm Goliath. And I love David's response. He doesn't cower in fear like everyone else. David says, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, of the God of the army of Israel, whom you have defied. In other words, David says, I come to you in the name of the Lord. Now, those of us in the Latin rite, what do we say? At every mass, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We say the same thing David said at every mass. What do we have to fear? Do you know the rest of the story? (laughs) David slew Goliath with his weapon. And we could do the same thing for this culture today. If we all work together as a body of Christ and use our weapons to fight for life. But it's precisely during those times when we're afraid, when our prayer is tinged with trepidation and anxiety. That we begin to really pick up that cross and follow Jesus. The real cross of prayer 
is to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of every single situation in our lives. Let me say that again. The real cross of prayer is to believe, truly believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of every single situation in our lives. If we want prayer to become not just what we do, but who we are, we have to have complete confidence in God's mercy and in his love. Now, we also have to put this into practice every day. Let me give you an example. (laughs) I was speaking in uh, my part of the country, United States. I'm from the Pacific Northwest. And I was speaking in a town near Seattle in our state of Washington. And I was having lunch with a brother deacon. And I had not seen Deacon Jack for quite some time. So we were having a nice time catching up for lunch. And he was assigned to a new parish up in that area. And so we were discussing life in his new parish. And we happened to be talking about music in the parish. And a waitress, not our waitress, but another waitress comes over the table and says, excuse me, um, I didn't mean to eavesdrop, but I heard you guys talking about music. Are you musicians? And Deacon Jack says, well, no. Uh, and this, this waitress was wearing a wooden cross, not a cruise, but I mean a good sized wooden cross. So Deacon Jack says, no, um, no, we're not musicians. We're actually deacons uh, in the Catholic Church. Oh, I, I noticed you have a cross on. Uh, are you Catholic? And she said, no, I used to be Catholic. I grew up in Texas and my parents uh, got divorced and my dad moved up here. Things weren't going well with my mom, so I decided to move up here with my dad. And my dad doesn't go to church, so I don't go to church. And so Deacon Jack says, well, you are most welcome at my parish. We're we're not too far from here. And, uh, you know, we'd love to have you come in and join us. And And she's very politely, okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Then she paused and then she said, um, can I ask you guys a question? What do you think about gay marriage? Now, at this point, my brother Deacon Jack takes a sip of his coffee and looks up at me as to say, your turn. (laughs) Because up to this point, he'd been doing all the talking. And so I said to this young lady, I said, okay, Let's talk about this. I said, first of all, what is marriage? I mean, literally, what does the word mean? So it comes from the word matrimony, matrimonium in Latin. Matri is a derivative of the word mater, which means mother. And monium is a suffix ending in Latin, which means the state or condition of something. So literally, matrimony means the state or condition of motherhood. So if we want to so-called redefine marriage, we have to change what those words actually mean. Who has a right to do that? Who has a right to take words and say, they no longer mean this, here's what they mean now. It's like in our country, the Supreme Court of our country, United States, so-called redefine marriage. Here's what they did. What is this? This is a, it looks like a glass of, what do you call it, something bitters or lemon lime bitters, right? That's what, it, but, the, but the Supreme Court basically said, no, 
This is Pepsi. And you're saying, well, actually, it's lime and lemon bitters. <laughs> and the court said, no, what you thought was lemon and lime bitters from all time and eternity. I am now telling you that this is Pepsi. What is this? And what do we do? Well, I guess it's Pepsi. <laughs> That's the church's response. We're always on defense. People throw this stuff in our face and we so worry about what people think that we take a we take a step back, take a defensive position. and We're always responding to things instead of being in front of it. That's our problem. And here they every now the in the United States, every state where they voted on this redefinition, it failed. So the court changed it here. The population voted it in. Why? Because the church didn't get in front of it. We tried, but when you're starting in second place trying to come up the front, sometimes you can't catch up. We need to change our way. And, and where's the change going to front? Everybody's looking at the, 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 the hierarchy. It's going it's to come from here. It's going to from people in this room. That's where the change is going to come from. And the work of the Culture Project, by the way, I'm very familiar with in the States. I actually sponsor a missionary from the Culture Project in the state. So I'm very familiar with the great work this organization is doing. And so I said, marriage is always understood to be the relationship between one man and one woman, any children they have together, which is the center, the heart, the core, the nucleus, the foundation of civilization, culture, and society. That is why, since the beginning of recorded history, 6,000 years, that relationship has always been protected by tribes, cultures, and civilizations. I said, what they want to do now is change that definition to two people who love each other. And I told her, notice in that definition, no mothers, no fathers, no children. It, that, that, that definition is all about what's best for those two people, not what's best for everyone. The reason why cultures and civilizations in like in my country, the United States tax laws favored married couples, man and woman, is because what that relationship does for everyone, not just for those two people, what it does for everyone in culture and society, even people who aren't married. I said this other definition favors those two people and that's it. It's a personal lifestyle choice decision and the government has no business interfering with somebody's personal lifestyle choice decision. And she said to me, well, what about children? Children have, you know, people have a right to have a child. I said, ho, 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 hold on. I said, children aren't rights to be negotiated or bargained for. I said, what children have a right to is a mother and a father. That's what children have a right to. But let's talk about that. They can't have children. She goes, well, they can do in vitro. I said, oh, hmm. what is in vitro fertilization? Well, she said, well, that's when you like make a, a, an embryo in a dish. I said, okay, let, let, let's step back. In vitro 101, right? When a woman is born as a girl, on the day of her birth, she has all the eggs in her ovaries she will need for the rest of her life. On the day she's born. But yet, in in vitro, they introduce hormones in her, her body which, uh, which stimulate 
egg production and she produces um, uh, uh, eggs. Uh, and so they extract those eggs, maybe 20 of them, let's say. And they put them, these immature ova into a Petri dish. Then they get a sample from a guy that could or could not be her husband. And I'll just leave it to your imagination how they get that sample. And they unite the sperm and an egg in a Petri dish and create, call it whatever you want, blastocysts, zygotes, embryos. All it is is the name of a human being at an earlier stage of development. We have names for human beings at all stages of development in life. Newborn, right? Infant, toddler. Now they got tween, then teen, then young adult, then middle age, then old. I said, we have names for human beings before they're born. Embryo, zygote, blastocyst, whatever. Just a name for a person, early stage of development. They allow those cells to get to a six, eight, six or eight or ten cell division. Then they take some of those new children, some of those fertilized embryos, and they reintroduce them into the womb of the woman. What do they do with the rest of them? She said, well, they freeze them. I said, yes, they cryogenically freeze those other embryos, those children used for genetic experimentation, or they just dump them down the drain. Because human embryos don't even count as medical waste. They just dump them down the drain. So let's say they take seven of them and implant them in the uterus of the woman. Say three of them take. So now we got a problem because she only wanted one child. So now they have to bring in another physician that's going to look at selective reduction. Which of the other two are going to die so that she have the one that she deserves? So I said, you can't take children, create them, and then destroy all the other ones so you can get the one that you want. That's not fair, and that's not right. And she said, well, she's trying to ask all the, well, what about? Well, what about? Well, what about uh, people who can't have children? There's people that die and they're single. They have kids. I said, yes, that's right. I said, my situation, my parents are divorced. My parents did not have a happy marriage, not even close. So I totally appreciate where you're coming from on that. But here's the thing. If a spouse dies, if a couple gets divorced, that is a sad and tragic circumstance. It's not by design. People don't get married and then say the wife think, wow, I can't wait after this wedding for my husband to drink alcohol and abuse me, then have all these affairs and cheat on me. I can't wait for that to happen. Nobody does that. Those things happen because of sad and tragic circumstances, not by design. So she said, well, wait a minute. Then, then uh, what about uh, what's the next thing she hit me with? Uh, what about, um, uh, God just made them that way. That's just the way I, I said, oh, okay. Then why did Jesus do any miracles then? What do you mean? I said, well, um, the man that was born blind, for instance, he comes to Jesus. He's blind from birth. Did Jesus look at him and say, mm, sorry, there's nothing I can do for you. Just born that way. That's the way the Father in heaven made you. I'm sorry. Just deal with it. Is that what he did? She says, no. I said, that's right. He healed him 
and restored him to the nature from which God intended from the beginning. So we are never intended to be born blind, intended to be born without limbs, intended to be born with Down syndrome, intended to be born with encephaly or trisomy 13 or any other. I said those are sad and tragic effects of the original sin of the fall. But we still, I said, here's the Catholic principle. We love everyone, but we always don't love their actions. And we judge actions, we never judge people. People that were born with whatever they're born with, we love them. And we care for them. Because we see every single human being made in the image and likeness of God. No matter what they were born with or what, it doesn't... We love people, but we always don't love their actions. And we judge actions. We never judge people. And she said, well, your arguments are from nature. That doesn't mean anything anymore. I said, really? Oh, well, let's do this. Let's take all of our same sex attracted brothers and put them on an island. Then 50,000 kilometers away, take all of our same sex attracted sisters and put them on an island. Then 50,000 kilometers away, put the 98% of the remaining population of heterosexuals, put them on an island, and then come back in 200 years. Who's still going to be here? I said, so actually, nature does matter because that's how we continue our species. That's how we continue to be here. She goes, well, what about visiting people in hospitals? Because in America, they have very strict laws about, like, for example, when I was first ordained and I went to do hospital visits, even though I'm clergy, dressed in my clerics, if I'm not on the list, I can't see the person. Well, what about, except if you're married, if you're married, if I'm, you, you can. So, well, they should be able to see. I said, you're right. I agree with you. People in the hospital should see whoever they want to see. So change the hospital laws. You don't have to change marriage to change the people can see who they want in the hospital. Change the hospital law. Then she says, well, you're black. <laughs> and your people had to fight for their rights, and these people need their rights too. I said, ooh, apples and oranges. I said, being black is not a personal lifestyle choice decision. I said, being black doesn't change the definition of marriage between one man and one woman and any children they have together, which is the heart, soul, center, foundation of civilization, culture, and society. Being black doesn't change that. So we went back and forth. So at the end, we agreed to disagree, which is okay. I wasn't trying to convert her. All I was trying to do was, here's the truth in love. I didn't yell. I didn't scream. I didn't judge her. I didn't attack her. I didn't call her stupid. That's, that, that does nothing. So we finish our lunch. And as we pay the bill and about to leave, I said, you know what, Deacon Jack, let me, let me go find this young lady. I'd like to talk to her one more time. So I found her and I said, you know, I just want to thank you. Usually when I talk to this issue with people, even with other Catholics, they yell at me, they scream at me, they call me ugly and insulting names, even though they say they're tolerant. But you, you were very respectful. And I want to thank you for that. And I stuck my hand out. And she shook my hand. She goes, you know what? You are the first Catholic I ever spoke to about this who didn't go ballistic. Then, no joke, 
She turned to Deacon Jack and she asked for directions to his parish. That kind of approach, the truth and love, but it's got to be the truth when you're dialoguing and not yelling or screaming or that does nothing. The human heart longs for truth, even though the people that don't agree with us don't they're not there. They don't believe it. But it's the truth that the human heart longs and desires to hear. That's where we're going to start to make the difference. And so what I do is I also tell folks about natural procreative technology. You know how many Catholics don't even know about this? Natural procreative technology. In the United States, we have the Pope Paul. Actually, it's international. The Pope Paul VI Institute. I have personally sent couples who were told they can never have children. The only way you can have is in vitro. These are Catholics. They said, well, no, we can't do that. Well, I guess we'll adopt, which is a beautiful option as well. I mean, Joseph was the foster father of Jesus. So adoption's okay. But I said, well, wait a minute. Have you heard of tried NAPRO technology? What? No, we've never even heard that. What is that? So I introduced them to the Pope Paul VI Institute. They did some research and they went. And these couples who were told they could not have children now have children. The natural procreative technology approach, which which violates nothing of the church's teaching on procreation, is two to three times more successful than in vitro fertilization in helping infertile couples have children at just a fraction of the cost. A fraction of the cost. It is 79% effective in helping women have successful pregnancies that have suffered repeated miscarriages. I wish my mom knew about that. She had about seven miscarriages before having me. And back then in, in the 60s, you know, they told them once she was pregnant with me, she said, okay, bed rest for the last three months of the pregnancy, on her back for three months for the last time with me. But my mom prayed to St. Jared, or we, we call him St. Gerard. Right? <laughs> you guys say St. Jared. And she prayed to him. And then I came. So she, my middle name is Jared. My brother's first name is Jared. My other brother's middle name is Jared. My sister's name is Gerilyn. So, <laughs> Napro technology is 95% effective at treating postpartum depression than anything else. Napro technology cuts the rate of premature births in half thus helping reduce the incidence of birth defects. NAPRO technology effectively treats women from experiencing infertility with up to an 80% success rate, and Catholics don't know this. We need to educate ourselves. Just like last night I gave a talk on the Mass, and people came up to me and said, I've been Catholic my whole life. I didn't know, I didn't make those connections with the Mass. And we need to educate to make these connections with people so that we can begin to educate and, and make a difference in people's everyday lived experience. So the head needs to meet the heart. So it just can't be about passion and emotion. It has to also be about education. But this connection needs to be made in order for us to be very effective. Now, what about embryonic stem cell research? Again, we know that embryos are children. Now, here's something interesting in 
in one of our largest states, California, was recently given two hundred and thirty million dollars to 14 research teams tasked with developing new stem cell therapies. Ten of the 14 involve adult stem cells exclusively. Now, we're told, though, that the future is going to come from embryonic stem cells. But yet 10 of the 14 research labs are doing adult cells exclusively. Why? Well, let's go to the expert, Oprah's favorite doctor, Dr. Mehmet Oz, vice chair of professor of surgery at one of the most prestigious medical universities in the United States, Columbia University in New York. He appeared on Oprah Winfrey's show and said this, quote, the stem cell debate is dead. The problem with embryonic stem cells is that it is very hard to control them and so they become cancer. In the last year, we have made 10 years of advancement. Here's what the deal is. I can take a little bit of your skin, take those cells and get them to go back in time so they're like they were when you were first made. Those cells, called induced pluripotent stem cells, because they won't be prone to cancer because they're your genes, will be the ones that are ultimately used to cure Parkinson's. We're single digit years away from making a big impact in the lives of those with Parkinson's disease and also heart attack victims and diabetics. It's gonna happen in our lifetime. Now, since his appearance on Oprah Winfrey, I did a little research and I found that there are currently 73 different types of diseases and illnesses being treated with adult stem cells that are effective. Half, most of these I can't even pronounce. But I'll, the ones that I can pronounce, I'll just read a few. Brain cancer, currently being treated right now with adult stem cells. Ovarian cancer, retinoblastoma, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, myelodious plastia, breast cancer, renal cell carcinoma, Ewing's sarcoma, Crohn's disease, juvenile arthritis, multiple sclerosis, acute heart damage, corneal regeneration, on and on. And I have the whole list and I have the links to the studies and the research where I got this from. How many therapies do you think have been derived from embryonic stem cells? Zero. How many do they expect in the next 10 years to come from embryonic stem cells? Zero. The score is 73 to nothing. Why are we still messing with babies? Why are we still experimenting on children? The score is 73 to nothing. Planned Parenthood, they're not babies. They're just bobs of tissue. <laughs> but in my country, over the past couple years, it's been exposed that they've been selling baby body parts. Selling the body parts. Of so let's see. They're not human beings. Then whose body parts are they selling? If they're not human beings. 
that's what we're up against. So what can we do? What are some practical things we can do? Everybody's praying. We all know that. But Jesus said when the 72 came back, he sent the 72 out. They came back. We could do all these cool things, Lord, except there were some demons we, we couldn't cast out. We don't know why. What did Jesus say? There's only some demons that be, can be cast out by prayer and fasting. We forget the second one. Everybody's praying. We forget about fasting. Powerful combination. Now, how powerful is, is fasting in itself? Now, if you look at my picture here from the last time I was here. <laughs> I was about 39 or 40 kilos heavier than I am now. Now, part of it is because my spiritual director got in my face. And said, God can't use you unless you use weight. And then my wife had been talking to me. So I finally hired a nutritionist, got serious. But you know, one of the keys that my nutritionist said, intermittent fasting. I'm like, fasting? The church had figured that out 2,000 years ago. <laughs> it's a powerful combination when you unite your, unite your prayer. to Because what does fasting do? What's the purpose Oh, don't worry about it. We won't get that on camera. <laughs> she spilled a drink on herself. That's all right. All right, so how powerful is fasting? So what fasting does, it empties you, right? Because it empties you of the, and it reminds you, oh, I'm hungry or I'm thirsty. Or I'm, because what it does, it reminds you of what you're really hungering for, of what you're really thirsting for, which is intimate, personal, loving, and life-giving communion with the living God. So fasting empties you so that God can fill you. And the beautiful thing is prayer and fasting. It doesn't always have to be food. Food's good. But fasting could also include fasting from something that you love. For example, I know you love your rugby, right? The football. So you could say, you know what? For to build a culture of life, I'm going to fast from watching the bulldogs for a month. Now, some of you looking at me like, I was with you, Deacon, till you said that. But that's the power. I mean, you're giving up. It's something that's good, something that you enjoy for the purpose of reminding you of what's really important. Uniting the prayer with that fast. So that's, I think, one of the simple ways that we can start. Next, we talk about time, talent, and treasure. We all give, a lot of us give our time to this cause. A lot of us give our talents to this cause. We also need to give our treasure to this cause. That's why I support the Culture Project. In fact, let me tell you how powerful the Culture Project is. I have three daughters, okay? And one of the Culture Project missionaries, uh, Chad Etzel, who I uh, consult with and, and, and help in the United States. He was coming to give a talk at a parish about 45 minutes from where I live. And I wanted my two daughters to go here about building a culture of life because, you know, I'm daddy and I do this for a living. And, you know, I talk to my kids and, I, you know, but they're like, OK, dad. Yeah. OK, we get it, dad. You know, sometimes even your parents, you know, it's like, uh. so I said, let's go listen to him. And they said, ah, oh, daddy, we don't feel like going. So 
I, I had to pull out the secret weapon. I'll take it for ice cream and chocolate when we're done. Because they're girls. And they love chocolate. So, and in fact, they told me, don't come back from Australia without Tim Tam. <laughs> I can show you the text. Don't come home without the Tim Tam. <laughs> so the girls, my two older teenage daughters, say, okay, let's go. So I took them. And, you know, they're sitting there going, oh, okay, we're going to be bored for now, whatever. And so he starts, and I'm sitting back. I'm like, come on, Chad, get him. And Chad was phenomenal. And, all, and on the way home, da, 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 the dirt, girls were just talking about it. And, that, you know, and they really don't talk to me about it. My son, different story. He talks to me all. But my daughters, you know, and they were just talking about it and the connections that Chad, I never thought about it from this perspective before. And it's beautiful because they get it from their dad. They get it from the homilies at mass. They're getting it from the culture project. Getting it. The more ways we can infuse this idea of building a culture of life into our young people, the more I think they'll start to sink in and become a part of who they are. So supporting Chad and supporting the culture project also helps to build the culture of life. The key, like what I did with that young lady in the restaurant, of evangelization, effective evangelization, is about planting seeds. The problem is we think we can convert people and we can't. We can't do it. The, the key is, because we think, if I just give them this DVD by Scott Hahn, if I just give them this devastating argument from Trent Horn, if I just give them this CD, if I just give them this Thomas Aquinas argument, if I, I know I can convert them. Uh, wrong answer. We can't, look, Jesus gives us the parable of the sower. The guy was out, the farmer's out there throwing seeds. Some land on rocky soil. Sandy soil, thorny soil, the weeds came and choked it, the birds came and ate it. Some it started to grow, but it didn't have uh, good roots, so it died. Some landed on good soil. Where the seed lands, not our problem. Because the Holy Spirit has to till and water and sunlight and fertilizer and allow to see the faith to grow in that person's heart. We can't do that. Only God can do that. We just have to be faithful and throw the seeds. That's what our mission of, in fact, Evan, it's a, we always hear that word evangelization, evangelization. You know, evangelization means what everybody knows, right? Good news. But here's what you may not realize. There was another way that word was used. Among the Greeks, it meant good news. But among the Romans, it meant life-changing news. Because the news of the gospel, well, the reason why it was called life-changing, because it was news that Caesar gave you. And when Caesar gave you news, it changed your life. But we use it for the gospel because when people we reach people with the gospel, it can change their life. It's life changing news. And this is news that our culture needs to hear in an effective and powerful way. And you know what? Get used to being called names. Get used to being insulted. Get used to being spat on. Get used to being called all kinds of insults. Because Jesus says, blessed are those who are insulted and called names and persecuted in my name. They're blessed. Those people are called saints. They're living with God forever in heaven. What God is asking us to do is not easy because him picking up the cross and carrying it, that wasn't easy either. Life is not easy. But we live in a fast food culture. If I'm hungry, 
Charbel's going to drive me to Macca's. I'll be eating in five minutes. God doesn't work that way. We don't serve a fast food God. God works in his time and God's timing is always perfect. But it's not our time. We just have to throw the seeds and evangelize. But here's the beautiful part. The reason why David had so much confidence because he realized that the, the Lord fought with and for him. He was not fighting Goliath alone. God was with him. And the same thing for evangelization. God always leaves work for us to do. Like when he raised a little girl from the dead, Talita Kum, little girl arise. What did he tell the people to do? Feed her, give her something to eat. You knew, know it, they probably gave her some good Lebanese food too. <laughs> what? God did his part, but he still left work for us to do. How about when he raised this boy Lazarus from the dead? Lazarus came up wrapped up like a mummy. What did he tell the people to do? Unbind him, unwrap him. Why? God did his part, but he leaves work for us to do. Now look at those two examples. God had the harder part. He raised people from the dead. He's always going to do the heavy lifting for us because he did the heavy lifting for us on the cross. But he still leaves part of the work of salvation for us to participate in. And we can't be afraid to do that. The truth in love, but it's always got to be the truth. Now I'm going to share a story with you. This pro-life work. I was, some of you may have heard this in one of my talks before, but I was uh, out doing a pro-life event and there was a, so there was a stage for the speakers and there was a stage in the other end of the plaza for a praise and worship band. So the way it worked, the speaker would speak and then the praise and worship band would do a song and then the next speaker and then the praise and worship band would do a song just to kind of break things up. So I get up to do my speech and uh, there's a, a protesters across the street and I get up and you hear the people chanting. So the camera, you can see I'm actually on my YouTube channel. You can see the video. The camera pans over to the crowd. You see all the protesters. They're yelling, get your rosaries off my ovaries, things like that. And I just say, let them yell. <laughs> they're not going to be louder than me. <laughs> and so I give the talk which is about 16 or 17 minutes. And then the camera shuts off. Here's what the camera didn't show. I got off the stage. I greeted a few people. And then the protesters had shifted down the street to yell out and drown out the praise and worship band. But there was one young lady who remained there. She had her sign braced against her legs and she was texting. So I look over. Hmm. Let me talk to her. Let me throw a few seeds. So I walked under the police tape. I walked across the street to the barricade. She does this. <laughs> I know you. You were the one that was just up there talking. How dare you say a woman doesn't have a right to choose? How dare you say a woman doesn't have a control over her own body? How dare you say a blob of tissue is a person? You want us to go back to clothes hanger abortions? Boy, she just ripped into me. She, she was yelling so loud, she was almost spitting in my face. And I stood there as Jesus said, the lamb before the shearer, and I kept my mouth shut. I said nothing. 
I just let her continue. Now I'm going to describe her to you because only because it dictated my approach to her. I live in the Pacific Northwest, and this is what I call a, a typical crunchy Northwesterner. She was about 24 years old, white girl, blonde hair, in dreadlocks. She was hairy. I guess they don't shave or I don't know. She smelled like she'd been hugging a tree for three days in the woods. Birkenstock, tie-dye, piercing, tattoos, the whole thing, the whole Northwest crunchy vibe. So when she finished her tirade, I just said to her, are you a vegan? Don't change the subject. Actually, it's pretty relevant to what I have to say to you. You don't eat meat? I don't eat meat. I don't eat fish. I don't eat eggs. I don't drink milk. I don't eat butter. I don't eat anything produced by an animal. Because they fill these animals full of hormones and chemicals. They take these animals in the laboratories and fill them with diseases and then torture them to find cures for us. No, I don't eat anything produced by an animal. Do you recycle? Of course I recycle. We got to protect Mother Earth and greenhouse gas and footprints all over the globe and global warming and all this stuff. I said, you know what? I can totally appreciate where you're coming from. For us as Christians, our Bible says our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And when you eat good things like what you're, you take care of yourself, that's a good thing. I said, and the Bible also says we're caretakers of God's creation. So when you recycle and do the footprint thing, that's a good thing. I commend you. I said, can I ask you a question, though? Are you on birth control? Ooh. What the hell kind of question is that? That's none of your goddamn business. That's a personal question. Well, we're both out here talking about abortion. That's pretty personal, too. Just humor me. Yeah, I'm on the pill. So what? Uh, uh, well, see, now I'm, I'm confused. Because you just told me that one of the reasons... Why you don't eat meat because they fill these animals full of hormones and chemicals. Yet you're taking an artificial hormone that tricks your body into thinking that it's pregnant. And when you piss out the estrogen, it goes into the river system and kills the fish. <laughs> so I pulled up a study on my phone from a university near Boulder, Colorado, in our state of Colorado, that showed the effects of estrogen in the water downstream from a sewage treatment plant on the effects of river fish because of estrogen from that sewage treatment plant in the water, killing the fish. I said, the very animals you're trying to protect, you're killing them. I said, I'm green and organic when it comes to sex. How come you're not? Now she's like, see, see, here's the key to effective evangelization. The reason why they yell and they scream and they call us names. And even though they're supposed to be tolerant, are the most intolerant people on the earth because they're only tolerant people that agree with them. The reason why they do that is they have no argument. They're yelling and screaming and name calling because they want you so caught up in the emotion of being called names that you don't think. I don't play into that. Call me all the names you want because when you're done, I'm giving you something to think about. 
So now she can't answer me because she saw she sees the internal dilemma that my question just posed to her. So I'm waiting for an answer. But we got a problem. The band finished playing. Her friends are coming back. I'm looking like this is going to get ugly real fast. <laughs> so I turned my back and I took out one of my cards. I wrote on the back Pope Paul VI Institute. We just talked about this. NAPRO technology, NFP, all the good Catholic stuff. I said, green organic sex for free. Check it out right here. <laughs> now, what could her response have been to me? She could have said, that's what I think about your Paul the Six. She could have went, threw the card back in my face. That's what I think about your Catholic faith. She took the card and put it in her purse. And then when her friends reached us, I backed away from her. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Why did I do that? So she can save face in front of her friends. Now she doesn't have to explain why were you talking to him. But she took the card. Now, is it my job to follow up with her to see what the Holy Spirit has done in her life and see how the power of God is confirmed? No! Our job is to throw this, recognize when we're living a Eucharistic faith, building a culture of life, that door of opportunity will open. And when that door opens, we throw the seeds and get out! (laughs) Get out of God's way so God can be God. That's my... I don't, to this day, I don't know what happened with her. But she took the card. And I'm, I'm guessing probably Google. And maybe the Holy Spirit's starting to work. It may take years. Who knows? That's our job, though. That's how we effectively evangelize. We have to share our stories. Sometimes we Catholics don't like to share stories. You know, the most popular show on EWTN is The Journey Home where people that come into the church are sharing their stories. I used to be an atheist. I used to be this. I used to be that. I used to be... And here's how I found my way to... And that's so popular because people are telling their stories. And the ones that do it the best are converts. Those of us who are cradle Catholics, it's like we still are in the cradle. We can't talk like babies. Share our... Look, the great, one of the greatest gifts that Christ gave us in the crucifixion was the gift of vulnerability. He was totally vulnerable on the cross. But it's from that vulnerability where we, where we received this strength. And he told that to St. Paul. We don't know. Paul was afflicted with some kind of thorn. And we don't know if it was a physical or mental. It was something. And he asked God to take it away. What did God reveal to him? My power is made perfect in weakness. It's when I'm weak. It's then that I'm strong. Because that God can be strong in him. Share your stories. Share your witness. Tell people how the power of God has worked in your life. That is the stuff of life. That beautiful vulnerability that that wakes me. Wait a minute. If God can do that for that person, I wonder if God can do that for me. There was an atheist in my RCIA class once. And the only reason he was there was to support his fiance who was coming back to the church after 30 years. After no, and finally he 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 finally decided to come into the church. But 
The point was this. He prayed for the first time. When he got to the point of, you know what his prayer was? He, he, I said, what did you do? He said, I walked outside. And I looked up in the sky. I said, uh, God, if you're there, this is Dan. Um, if you're real, show me. Now think about how powerful that prayer is for a second. If you're real, show me. Now I'm waiting. I'm waiting for Dan to say, then the Lord struck me to the ground with a thunderbolt. <laughs> or I, I, I'm like, Dan, what happened? What happened? He goes, I want to be Catholic. Wow, huh? Then finally, we got to use the social media. You know, I'm in the older generation, right? You know, so, you know, all this social media stuff was new to me. And, I, and when I first heard of Facebook, I thought, oh, you just play games. There's people just, all I heard was people were playing games. I don't want to join again. So it was Father Larry Richards, a priest who's going to be here later this year. You think, I'm on fire. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. When my son, I took my son to see Father Larry. You know, because he's he, we were speaking at a conference together and I never took my son to a conference before with me. And he's sitting there watching Father Larry and Father Larry's giving it to him. And then my son is just looking and I'm watching my son I said, what do you think, Benjamin? He goes, he's like a white version of you. <laughs> <laughs> it was Father Larry who got me on Facebook. He goes, Deacon, you're on Facebook. Father, no, I'm not, on, I'm not on play no games. He goes, you got to be where the young people are. You got to evangelize. Get on Facebook. Yes, Father. <laughs> so Instagram, all that may use that as a vehicle to share the good news of the culture of life. So I conclude with this. A few years back, I was delighted when some college friends of mine shared with me that they were pregnant with their fifth child. But my joy quickly turned to sorrow when I read the email they sent afterward. It started as a routine ultrasound. They quickly learned that their daughter had been diagnosed with anencephaly, which is a neural tube disorder in which the brain is not formed or doesn't develop at all. So they started a blog and started posting updates on the blog on how things were going. And one of the blogs they wrote, a question that comes up is, how do you deal with a situation like this? How many times have we have already been asked if we would like to terminate? It is not an all an option for us. This is our child that we're going to love and nurture for as long as we can. Actually, she isn't even our child. She's God's child, like all of our children. Our deep faith in God and our hope in heaven keeps us going. They named their daughter Angela because they knew she was going to be their little angel in heaven. They've been, been praying for a miracle. But then they wrote, Dear Lord, if not a miracle healing, then please let her be born alive so that we can shower our love on her. A child first learns to love in his mother's womb, where he knows that the relationship of love and life is intensely personal.
Jesus, the Lord reveals us in the scriptures, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. For it was you who created my being, knit me together in my mother's womb. Already you knew my soul. My body held no secret from you when I was being fashioned in secret. Every one of my days was decreed before one of them came into being. This openness to life is not a suggestion. It's what it means to abandon all and to follow Christ. When Angela was born, she weighed six pounds and seven ounces. They had a priest there who immediately baptized and confirmed her. They thought they would only have a few minutes with her, but she lived for three days. During that time, Angela learned the meaning of love. As her mother and father gently held her and her brothers and sisters took turns loving on her. And as she nursed from her mother's breast. Angela experienced the love of God through a unique and special bond with her mother and her father. On the third day, Angela's breathing became labored and she started to turn purple. And surrounded by her family and friends, Angela took her last breath, opening her eyes briefly before she slipped away. The only time in her life that they saw her open her eyes. A parent's primary responsibility is to get their children to heaven. And God thanked them for a job well done by allowing Angela to gaze on the face of her father and mother who sacrificed so much yet remained joined to the vine of Christ. And so my brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter how dark it gets, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It is not darkness that dominates, but the blinding light of Christ. And Christ tells us we are the light of the world. We cannot keep our light under a bushel basket where nobody can see it. Christ says, put your light up on a hill so that people can see the light. And when they see the good work that we do, they will give glory to God. Psalm 115, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give the glory. So everything we do in protecting and defending of culture of life honors God. Death gives way to life, a life that dies no more. This is the truth that we must proclaim not only with our words, but by the witness of our lives. We can rebuild the culture of life and we can move from sorrow to joy, from despair to hope and from death to everlasting life. Amen. Thank you all very much. God bless you. That was Deacon Harold Burke Sivers with Honey from the Rock, Nurturing Life in a Culture of Death. The Restore Nights are an event hosted by The Culture Project Australia. For more from The Culture Project Australia and for more talks, interviews and shows, visit creadio.org.au.